Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your online, live, interactive weekly magazine for home brewers, QRPers, ham radio experimenters across the fruited plain, across the fruited world. This is George, N2APB, your host for the tonight, along with co-host Joe, N2CX, fresh back from vacation. And also, we've got a guest host this evening with us, Joe Jessen, uh, KC2VGL, and we have a real treat in for everybody, as, as you've by now seen, the white Board. We're talking today about uh, GPS applications in QRP communications as far as timing, as frequencies, other derivative projects for uses of GPS in the shack. So chances are most of you have heard about GPS being available to us amateurs for our stations and, and in use. And you, like me, perhaps and, uh, a, a while ago, you might have said, gee, that's cool. I'll get into it someday and, and whatever. But at least for some of us, that someday is already here. And we've got some really interesting ways that we are starting to use it uh, within our stations. So hopefully we're going to cover a lot of this material today. And it will be of, I think it will be of great interest. We're going to start off with some of the basics as far as like what GPS is. Not meant to be all inclusive and thorough down to the nth level of description and no math, of course. And we're fitting everything here into the next hour time frame. So we can use that as a bit of a gauge for the kind of depth that we're going to get to. However, this depth is going to be really enough to give you a good overview of what is available, what the technology is how you can actually take advantage of some of this technology real simple in the way that we normally do here on Chat with the Designers, either by means of chips or special boards or development kits that we kind of point out and or make available in some fashion to chat with the designer uh, listeners. And So we're going to get into it uh, pretty straight away. Yeah, Armand, go ahead. Yeah, good evening, George, and, uh, and everybody else. And George, I just wanted to thank you. I purchased these surviving technologies technology that you mentioned last week and I'm about halfway through it. <laughs> that is a great read, so I have to thank you very much for that. Outstanding. Oh, that is so good to hear, Armand. I'm glad that you like it. And again, if anybody's wondering what we're talking about, take a look at last week's whiteboard concerning uh, scope applications, and you'll see a news item up at the top where you give the description of this book that uh, Armand is talking about. Fabulous, fabulous homebrewing book um, for some of the, uh, uh, the tube circuits of yesteryear and especially for a tube-based regen, the ultimate regen by Bruce Vaughn. Let's get into it then for today. Once again, I welcome Joe Jessen, KC2VGL, Victor Golf Lima. And Joe is a regular with Chat with the Designers each week with us. And he stepped forward and with his expertise in GPS technology, and uh, you'll see some of his uh, design accomplishments uh, and involvement on a daily basis and, and the day job, as it were as we're speaking here tonight. So let me turn it over to Joe. Thanks, George. I, uh, yeah, this is a passion of mine, too, for the last 12 years. And uh, one thing I won't talk about, GPS, is uh, using it as a location tool. <laughs> That's the one thing I won't talk about it. And uh, we're going to be looking at GPS as a uh, tool for uh, specifically for QRP communication and um, SDR uh, specifically. And uh, there are really two angles here that I want to cover. I, I probably don't have much time for the second. But uh, what I want to talk about is, is to take advantage of what's coming in off the uh, onboard atomic clocks and how we can use it uh, in, in to move our, our hobby along. And, uh, and the other area I wanted to see is, is talk about is how to improve your equipment accuracy at your uh, shack. So there 
probably the two areas I would like to focus on. But also, one thing I'd like everybody to keep in mind, when we look at GPS, uh, I look at that as the ultimate QRP, because if you, if you look at the signal levels, uh, you will see that you're actually below the noise floor on L-band, where the, uh, where the uh, beaconing uh, satellites are beaconed in. At, uh, if you look at the first slide here, I'll go through it quickly on the, the basics. But um, when people say GPS, uh, really the new phrase is global navigation systems. And then GPS in North America uh, is, is really Navstar GPS. And um, so typically at this point where um, it's designed to, to uh, have launched up to 31 uh, Navstar satellites. And uh, currently, I think the, the spot check is 24. And there are, are uh, standby satellites. And uh, some of them are getting kind of old and need to be replaced, but uh, I won't go into that, that argument. Um, basically, the signals are transmitted over L1, which they de de designate as L1, and uh, that's the civilian frequency of uh, 1574.42 megahertz, or 1.575 gigahertz, um, which is considered L-band, and that's the uh, and I say that because that's the the uh, current L1 channel. That's not the military frequency or the L3 frequency, which is we can't talk about in this, in this show. <laughs> Anyhow, so uh, let me see. Any questions so far? All of the, uh, you say everybody transmits on the same frequency, Joe, 1575. What's the story there? Right. So what, what that frequency means is that uh, everybody shares the same frequency because they all use what's called spread spectrum. And there's a, a modulated um, frequency that gets generated by a pseudo-random key. So there's a pseudo-random code called CA, and the C is course and the A is acquisition. And what it is, uh, think of it as a... Um, and a OR junction, exclusive OR junction, where you have a frequency offset code uh, known as pseudo-random or chip, and that basically moves the frequency around. It's at a, uh, at a sequence that's predetermined. So your receiver basically has to understand the same uh, pseudo-random code, and that's used to decrypt it. Again, it's being generated by an exclusive OR function and uh, what you see then is a, is a movement of, of frequency around the 50 bits per second. GPS is a 50 bit per second uh, signal. And um, so that's what, if you, look at a, if you look at the power spectrum, and I don't know anybody who's, if you've looked at it on a spectrum analyzer, you see a nice Gaussian curve, which shows you the, the distribution of energy. The other thing you see too, is that it's a very low level of, of uh, of signal strength and um, let me go into the next slide here any any questions on that maybe just one real quick one you mentioned the uh, the minimum signal strength and you show it there is 158 dBW some of us know minimum MDS minimum detectable signals levels in our receivers are in the order of 130 dB something uh, Joe either you or Joe E um, how does that correlate to that particular measurement, that very low signal. 
Uh, we generally talk about minimum detectable signals in the ham world of a uh, tenth of a microvolt or so, which would be, I think it's minus 137 dBm. This is dBw, so this is on the order of a couple tenths of a microvolt signal, which is uh, close to a CWMDS. But you've got to remember this is spreading energy over a wider passband. So it looks like it's below the noise in a uh, in the wide spectrum. Gotcha. Thanks, Joe. Um, JJ, proceed, please. Sure. And uh, the next slide, it just is a simple slide that shows you really how does it actually work. And again, GPS and Navstar satellites, I think of those as orbiting uh, cesium clocks because that's what they are. And then you can correlate um, distance and and location if you have. In three-dimensional space, you really, if you have four uh, atomic clocks or time signal transmitters, you can then actually determine uh, longitude, latitude, and altitude, as well as the exact time. So it basically gives you, um, because of the orbit these satellites are in, uh, at 17,000 kilometer, um, approximately 17,000, they're in a MEO or medium Earth orbit satellite, so they're moving uh, over six planes. <clears throat> and basically the six planes then, um, you're constantly beaconing position code and you're, you're constantly positioning what satellite am I? Am I satellite one, two, three, four? And part of the 50 bits would be your, um, your actual um, number satellite and which then gets looked up with, with through what's called an almanac and then a finer uh, location determination tool called ephemeris. But that's uh, probably as far as I want to go along that path. But basically you need four, four satellites to get a 3D fix, which is longitude, latitude, altitude, and the exact time. The next slide I have, uh, I think it's interesting because uh, we all are interested in QRP communication. So here's some, some really uh, interesting lessons here. Uh, you got the absolute value at the satellite transmitter of 21.9 watts. And then you, you see you, you get a little bit of gain, 13 dB gain due to um, the transmitter or the satellite antenna gain. And I don't know if you've seen those antennas, but uh, you end up with about 13 dB gain. And then what you, if you go down this path of loss from here on, you see a huge loss, minus 184.4 dB loss approximately. And that's just the predictable attenuation in space for moving uh, 17,000 kilometers. So you have space attenuation that's uh, pretty dramatic. <laughs> These are very weak signals. So if you go down here, you get another minus two, 2 dB hit due to uh, atmosphere attenuation. And by the way, L-band was chosen because of its minimal atmospheric attenuation, uh, unlike KU bands and some of your higher frequencies. Um, and then uh, hopefully you get 3 dB gain from your antenna. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So for an absolute value of minus 160 is what, it, what you can see at the, um, and again, this will vary depending on the polarization mismatch and the attenuations, various attenuations. But you see uh, you're at um, minus 160 dBW or minus 130 dBn. Um, so it's significantly uh, 
uh, that's a very weak signal. <laughs> and, and I'll get a little bit into the tricks that they're playing because I think it's remarkable for me as a QRP fan to, to look at that and say, well, how does it work? I mean, how do they get, how do you, how do you receive minus 160 or better than a, what, Joe, tenth of a microvolt? Yeah, tenth of a microvolt, holy mackerel. Each, each of those orbiting cesium clocks, the GPS uh, transmitters up there, um, is transmitting 21.9 watts. What kind of power sources do they use, Joe? And then I have something here that I found very interesting that I quoted from Wired magazine. It says, according to Einstein's special theory of relativity, a clock that's traveling fast will appear to run slowly from a perspective of someone standing still. Satellites move at about 9,000 miles per hour, enough to make their onboard clock slow down by eight microseconds per day from the perspective of a GPS gadget and totally screw up the location data. So to counter this, this Einsteinian effect, the GPS system adjusts the time it gets from the satellites. So there, the only question I have is, are they correcting it on the satellite or are they correcting it from the telemetry uplink? And uh, I, I haven't looked that up yet, but that's, anyhow, I think that's really interesting that it proves uh, special theory of relativity. Yeah, Joe E., I think we were uh, talking last night that it, it seems reasonable that um, instead of a mass correction of eight microseconds every day, one time a day, it's really sp should be spread out across uh, an entire larger period of time so you don't get massive discontinuities in whatever kind of location or timing uh, that's being provided, right? Yeah, that's correct. There is also a, uh, a ground station that controls the whole network. So that enters into uh, getting every, everybody uh, on track, so to speak, and uh, making sure that uh, all the corrections are cranked in. So I think they do uh, incrementally update the uh, time so that everybody is uh, in lockstep step. And the question I had before about how is the uh, how is the satellite how are the satellites powered, uh, Joe E? Do you know? Yeah, they have batteries on board, rechargeable batteries. And if you look at the uh, picture of the satellite, it has big uh, solar array that keeps those batteries charged. Uh, generally, I think they use NICADs because they're they uh, special NICADs because they have very good. Uh, uh, characteristics for space. I'll, I'll let it go at that. Uh, so I suspect that's what they use. It's fairly common in the satellites. Okay, yeah, so you're, you're correct on that, Joe. And it, it's um, and the um, the latest are some lithium lithium batteries, but the uh, specially built NICADs are in common use today. And the um, also Orbcom, you know, I'm involved with Orbcom satellites. And they basically have um, especially hand-built built, um, NICADs. All right. So to this point now, we've uh, we've kind of covered that there's there's a constellation of about 25 satellites up there, any four of which are used at a given point in time in order to determine uh, as L, um, L um, um, uh, the height, and or, um, and time, and the frequencies are uh, the, the 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 signal power level received on Earth is very very small, and um, an important implied point, and I think that's going to be valuable going forward, is that 
the cesium clocks on, on board those uh, GPS uh, satellites are all synchronized to UTC. So the time that is received on the ground is all synchronized um, to the second, as we'll, we'll, we'll learn shortly, um, to UTC time. Is that right, Joe, uh, JJ? That's exactly correct. And it's uh, corrected UTC time that's uh, available through uh, basically a common NMEA protocol that's uh, spit out on their UART. Well, what I'd like to do is start, you know, how, do, how does the actual uh, hardware work? And I think this is, again, uh, I think there's some good lessons here when you look at the design of this in terms of, uh, you know, how do we build a very sensitive uh, QRP system. But if you look at the block diagram I have up on this slide, um, I took, for example, um, a mu blocks, LEA 6, which is a current, which is the new um, version of a very, probably the, one of the highest quality GPS uh, systems and uh, that I've used. And uh, we, we used to do some test environments where in New York City and in Singapore. Okay, so basically I started to go through a block diagram here of what constitutes a GPS receiver. And um, I'm using as an example a mu blocks, which is a very, very good, very common, one of the top three GPS producers in the world today. It's a Swiss company. And they have, um, they've been very popular. If you look at uh, your OnStar and so forth, they almost routinely always, well, they always use mu blocks um, in that particular configuration. There's a couple of other, other variants that are very good. In production, we've, we use mu blocks for, for uh, the designs I work on. And uh, so, is that working okay, George? You yeah, you're good, Joe. Okay. So if you look at the RFN, see on the left, there's the antenna symbol, and you have a uh, going into what's called the RF front end with integrated low noise amplifier. And then you'll see a filter called a saw filter. And typically, uh, most designs include this. Uh, it's a bandpass filter. And it's uh, a saw stands for a surface acoustic wave filter where you have a transducer. Typically, it's built on a ceramic substrate. Uh, Murata is one of the most popular supplier of the saw filter. And so you have a transducer on the transmitter side of it. And then you have a a uh, Again, this is this is an L band, so this is at uh, not at baseband, but at L band. Then you filter the the uh, primary L1 GPS channel. So what you what basically what you see here is that um, you've got a typically 15 to 25 dB amplifier on the RF front end, and then you have a typical low noise bipolar. Typically, it's a bipolar or MOSFET. On the, on the amplifier. And then you have, um, and you they're playing the trick where they'll send out the bias uh, DC voltage onto the antenna. And typical GPS antennas have a um, amplifier uh, as close as they can to the antenna. In many cases, it's a ceramic uh, 18 millimeter or larger square uh, antenna. And, and there'll be an amplifier right at the antenna, which is, of course, good practice for uh, low noises. Put your amplifier right at the, at the antenna. Um, 
let's see what else I can say about the front end on this thing. Um, and then basically you have a you have a mixer and you, you, you see two variants of the architecture on the receiver side. You see uh, zero IF and you see a very low frequency uh, superheterodyne type type outputs, receiver outputs. And then the um, 80 kilohertz or so low frequency IF then will go to a baseband processor or you'll have direct I and Q go directly to the baseband processor. But either way, the baseband processor then takes the I and Q signal and basically works on a series of interesting, very interesting algorithms. Now, it's working quite slow, but they have what's called a correlator. That's one of their secret sauces for bringing signal out of the noise. And a correlator is, is a simple DSP tool that will take the signal and average it. It will build a multiply and build a what it thinks is the image on itself. So it will start pulling the signal out of the noise by multiplying an image of itself. And <clears throat> the way GPS works and the other secret that they use for getting very good low, uh, low signal detection is they have a what's called a template and they have a pattern that they look for. So there's a pseudo-random pattern and sync patterns that they constantly look for. And it's a very known, it's a very highly structured pattern. And you'll, you'll see both of these two things I just mentioned again when you look at uh, Joe Taylor's protocols, which is one of the, so he's, I think he's learned uh, from GPS. <laughs> and um, so the baseband processor works on a template and then it looks at the signal and it brings the signal out of the noise and then it starts matching up what what specific satellite it is and what the signal level is is very critical carrier to noise ratio of each satellite that it identifies and once it identifies the satellite then of course it can measure time and again you you're looking at four or more satellites to give you latitude long, longitude altitude and uh, and correct time any questions on this so far? So it sounds like all of this block diagram that you're saying, that you're talking about, is uh, contained in that one U-blocks uh, module pictured in the upper right, correct? Correct, Amundo. That's right. So everything is in this, in this uh, um, hybrid module. Now, you can buy the, the chipset itself your own soft filter but again you're working at L band and you have to be very careful in the layout and uh, most most products today are purchased through the entire module unless you got a lot of time then you get the geometry uh, perfect and I'll show you where we spent some time with the antenna geometry so we build our own antenna which took enough time <laughs> so the output of your baseband processor is a uh, UART so a UART is a serial a, an asynchronous serial uh, pattern that comes off and that adheres to a uh, standard called NMEA. So that's a, a data stream uh, spec 0183 that they follow that gives a whole series of um, CG commands. So what you, what you do is you, you'll watch the data uh, for dollar sign uh, and then you'll look for the string and then you'll parse the string. But anyhow, that, that comes off the standard NMEA data stream. So there's all kinds of goodies in that, which include obviously latitude, longitude, time, 
uh, time of day, UTC time, obviously. And then you got all the usual RF stuff. So you got signal carrier to noise ratio of each satellite, and you've got reflections called, um, uh, you, you see reflections, they, they call that a GPS baseband uh, language, and then NMEA spills it out as uh, dilution of precision errors. So there's various errors that uh, is also encoded in the NMEA data stream. And um, I'm trying to think what else is in that. Um, uh, there's a, uh, latitude, I mentioned that. You also have um, uh, whether it's a 2D fix. A 2D fix is possible with three satellites, but the error can be easily several hundred meters off. And when you have a 3D or four satellite fix, then you're talking about today it's typically to see two to five meter um, accuracy. And they, they define accuracy as um, CEP, or circular error probability, which is a bullseye. You're basically in or out of a five meter circle. And that's what they define as five meter uh, CEP. Basically, GPS is statistical in nature, so none of this is guaranteed. <laughs> you got moving satellites, you've got various types of attenuation, you have reflections, you have all the usual stuff that people don't really think about when they use their GPS, but there's a lot, there's other errors that can crop up. And in, in fact, uh, there might be certain times of the day in the orbit where you don't have four satellites. You might have less than that, so you don't have a good 4D fix, 3D fix, which is forced. Um, the other thing that comes out is uh, typically you'll get a one pulse per second signal, and that'll be, uh, we'll talk about that at, at length later. And some of the new um, baseband processors are highly sophisticated, and they have, in this particular case, you'll see an ARM7. There's a ARM7 processor on the lower left. And then you have backup uh, RAM that typically stores the almanac and ephemeris, which is your predictor of where the satellites are in orbit. And then you, um, uh, you have the digital IF filtering installed on digitally in the baseband processor. And the other thing I didn't mention is the, there's an engine for GPS, but there's also marked in here Galileo. Now, Galileo is the European and I might add to the Russian uh, GLONASS. Um, I, I was telling Joe the other day it was GLASNOS, but it's GLONASS is the is the Russian satellites which are in production, and of course they cannot use the U.S. Air Force uh, controlled GPS Navstar, so they have their own system called GLONASS, and that's in production. And the chipsets, many of the chipsets out there now will show up as uh, both combination of both US Navstar GPS and GLONASS. So you'll see instead of without GLONASS, the Russian satellites, you'll typically see, you know, four or six. And then with GLONASS, you might see another four more. So this is this is a real help for two things, accuracy and time to first fix. Any questions? It's just a general one, I guess. Is the Russian system completely independent of of ours? Yes. And you said, though, um, I, I got I I inferred from what you were saying that one is able to was able to um, 
improve, uh, what did you say, accuracy or something? But I guess that wasn't it. Just the more, the more that are received improves your accuracy. Exactly. So if you if you have sixteen satellites, your accuracy is is obviously that much better. I mean, it's it, it's another checkpoint. So they can they can what they refer to as geometry, overhead geometry. So if you have satellites spaced out and you can see more than four, your uh, two things are going to improve the accuracy and time to first fix, which is how fast can I acquire uh, my location, my 3D location. That's that's really one of the major things I look for is time to first fix and how many satellites can you find at one time. And 50 is typical. And the, the in terms of, I don't know if now would be a good time, but let me, I could just, I don't know if this is divergent or not, but the, what you see in recently in terms of improvements with GPS is is very interesting too. Not only are you seeing the Russian satellites appear on the baseband output that you can use to calculate position, but you also have improvements in sensitivity about a half dB per year. So if you're using an old Jupiter, original Jupiter chipset, you will be amazed if you look at the performance of the new one. Um, was that your finding, George, on your bench? Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that. That explains a lot, Joe. Um, for for listeners here, um, the references at the bottom of the whiteboard in our usual spot, we, we try to really be have, have a, a rich resources, uh, links and, and such. It lists, and I actually displayed some of the Jupiter uh, the different kinds of, of GPS boards that are available or that have been available over the years. Jupiter is one, and as Joe suggested, it's a Jupiter chipset. Jupiter chipset. It's an implementation similar to the kind of block diagram that Joe showed for the U-blocks. Similarly, Motorola makes one, which is called the Encore engine, and uh, there are some others. But um, I guess I didn't know that over time, and it makes sense, that over time the improvements would be uh, seen. Some of the uh, modules that I've been able to get my hands on are the older ones, and their performance has not been as great as maybe what I've seen in, in some of the obviously newer ones that don't have as much dust on it uh, from the ham fests that I get them from. Well, one of the, one of the um, tools that the GPS chip manufacturers use that they, where they get continual, like I said, about a half, dB per year improvements is the number of correlators. I mentioned correlators, a tool that helps bring the signal out of the noise uh, by looking at a template and actually multiplying the signal by itself. And it's a it's a tool, but the, the latest MuBlox, you guys are sitting down, has 2 million hardware correlators on it. So they've been jumping up every few years, they jump up by a million correlators. So Last year, the the chips I purchased were had a million correlators. This year, they're two million correlators. That is awesome. I mean, it's amazing how you can fit. And I suspect two million is on that U-Box chip that we've been talking about. You bet, two billion. That's the uh, six, the Leah six. The six is the firmware in the baseband processor uh, ID uh, version number. Okay. To be clear. Um, because it matters, uh, two million with an M, right? Correct. Ah, 
I won't. There's not enough time to get into it. Um, I would love to drive uh, deeper on that as far as how are those implemented and combination of uh, uh, hardware and software. But let's let's save that for another time. Um, please continue. The one PPS probably is of great interest uh, to us here. Okay. Well, let me jump to the next slide, which is really, you know, why why are we here? Why does it make sense to to apply this to QRP, what can we do with this? And what I did is I went back into Joe Taylor's, um, everybody knows the JT65 and Whisper. Um, I missed an R on that one. But everyone knows the weak signal protocols that Joe Taylor um, has developed and what he's doing. And what I did on this slide is I, I you know, it's, it caught my eye. One of his slides, Joe Taylor's original slides, was comparing JT65 versus code. And this is not coherent code. This is just garden variety code. And um, he's claiming a approximately a 10 dB JT65 advantage. But then he goes into four bullet points, which is what he, what methods he's using to improve the signal to noise ratio. And I think this is really significant. And I've actually talked to him about this in person. And, and he's, he's using a, almost identically the same tricks that GPS baseband is doing to keep improving GPS reception at minus 160 plus. Um, so anyhow, what I'd like to do is jump into that. So one of the things, if you, it turns out if you have a highly structured message, which, I mean, the downside is, Joe correctly pointed out earlier to me was, you know, you're not going to get a lot of uh, discussion traffic. These are very highly structured messages, especially with whisper, as there's no dialogue. It's just handing off signal levels and so forth. Um, second bullet point, well, you can get some gains if you have highly structured messages, same as what internal to GPS. The error correcting code is the other part. He uses a forward error correcting code in JT65 and Whisper. And, and the third bullet point, and I highlighted that because this is what we're, we're going to focus on today, is synchronized transmissions. You know, how do we, how do we look in, when you're searching for symbol changes, uh, which is also known as receiving, um, you're really, if you look at the window of time you're searching, you can improve the, the performance and the sensitivity. And then finally, he's calling it transmissions can be averaged, but again, averaged, he, what he's really referring to is correlators. And uh, any question on that? So the, um, so I think what you're saying here, and I, and I know this because I've been uh, working on the JT65 code as far as uh, uh, the cube is, is concerned. And uh, what Jay, uh, what Joe Taylor has really taken advantage of is three or four actually four or more, um, specific characteristics of the information being transferred in the channel. And as you've outlined them, they're, they're structured messages, which means you know what's coming, you know what position or what, you know what's coming next. If you know what's coming next, um, you can more accurately prepare to receive it. And I'm, I'm talking about from a software perspective. Error correcting code is is just what it sort of says. It's, uh, it has the ability to correct to a certain degree um, errors in the transmission channel. Synchronized is the other big thing that comes about with uh, JT65 and Whisper, such that the transmissions and, and reception, correspondingly the receptions, are synchronized to very specific time intervals. 
Um, and in our case here with GPS, of course, it's going to be synchronized to UTC. And there are more specifics than that, of course. So these are things that uh, Joe, Taylor, and, um, and, and any kind of a communications channel um, engineer is really going to leverage in order to gain more dynamic range, uh, lower signal reception capability, and, and so on, using a lot of tricks at their, uh, up their sleeve. And that's what, uh, JJ, you're pointing out here. That's right. Um, what, what I, you know, I started digging further in the JT65 manual and, and right in the back, in fact, the, one of the last appendix, it says, by the way, this will not work unless you're synchronized, um, UTC synchronized to plus or minus one second. And this is a common BFI mistake is that you're not synced to plus or minus one second. So <laughs> that really got my attention and why they put it in the rear of the manual. I have no idea, but um, we can link to that. And it's always, uh, and then other manuals have said neophytes make mistake by not um, carefully synchronizing the UTC time. Basically, JT65 and Whisper will not work. It drops packets even when you go up to a second off. And then if you exceed a, uh, a second off, you've dropped so many packets, it just doesn't work. So that's, uh, and what they recommend in the manual is you purchase a, a um, clock synchronization tool for your Windows or Linux package or Mac. I think it's been ported to Mac recently. But basically, you, you know, they say don't even think of running this unless you synchronize it using, I think the tool is called Pavilion. There's one called, uh, no, Dimension. Dimension is the software app that syncs up to your PC to um, UTC time correctly. And it says you cannot rely on Windows 7 internal clock for that, or even their synchronized clock, which is built into Windows 7, it says it does not work, that you actually have to have this dimension software package to sync it. So that was another eye-opener. And so here's the, here's the dilemma. You're setting this up as a remote station. You, you should have, you have to have internet access, right? The other option would be to use a time source, either WWVB, which is not reliable certain times of the day, obviously it's not, not that great, or GPS. I mean, again, the goal is you have to be plus or minus one second. And in this case, I said GPS is more reliable than WWVB transmission from, used to be Fort Collins. I don't know where it is now. Did I lose everybody? No, no, you're doing fine, Joe. It, it's kind of a dilemma when, when speakers don't hear anything back. Um, I often feel the same kind of uncomfortable nature, but I've been reassured by a lot of the listeners offline that that uh, they're just kind of digesting everything and they don't, they're, they're just sort of following along. So let's continue on. Let's keep an eye on the time and uh, and then we'll see what we can do. Joe, do you have anything? Joey? Yeah, I have a quick uh, question. You talk about time synchronization for uh, JT65. How about uh, frequency accuracy of your uh, transmitter and receiver? That's a very good point, Joe. And I believe the spec on that is one hertz. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Aha. Uh -huh. So that's something else that GPS could help you with, potentially. Uh, <laughs> that's a leading question. Okay. Um, well, okay. So we know we have to come up with a um, correct UTC time within plus or minus a second. So one way to do that with GPS 
is actually to read the um, have your application code read and parse the NMEA 0183 protocol. So the, the following are strings that embed UTC time of day. Um, so you can extract it from any one of the dollar GP GGA sequences or dollar GP GSA or any of these sequences have time of day and it's accurate of course within very accurate <laughs> but in this particular case it's accurate to one second because that's the uh, unit we will we'll extract from the from parsing NMEA and um, so this is one example so I'm calling this JT65 and whisper weak signal protocol timing option one and this is the easiest one because I'm not aware of any GPS system that does not spit out NMEA when told to out either the the serial port, uh, the UART, which is could be TTL levels, or or a um, USB port. I'm getting a little lost as far as where you are in the slides, Joe. But uh, bottom line is that it looks like you're reviewing again that we've got options for one PPS output. We've got RS232 or UART. Uh, actually, which is not RS-232, it's uh, um, it, it's a digital signal uh, UART, and um, out of that comes NMEA, which is reviewed two or three slides down. So your listing of of uh, G codes is is down there, and then you haven't yet covered the um, the special case of of uh, frequencies that are able to come out of some of the modules. All right, well, let's let's jump um, on option two. So option one was NMEA. Option two, you many of the, the GPS modules, not all, have one pulse per second. Um, so you're limited a little bit to the GPS module that gives you one pulse per second. And so you have a typically a, a TTL level, a standard, and some some uh, GPS system providers. So if you buy a whole a whole board, a whole box basically that's has an RS232 port on it, they use data set ready pin or clear to send port to give you your one PPS. Okay, so option three would be a direct uh, programmable or a direct timing signal output, either 10 kilohertz as the Jupiter has or up through 10 megahertz that the LEA 6T has. So if you, you, this is even more rarefied, but there are GPS chipsets that give you a programmable um, time base of 10 megahertz, up to 10 megahertz, which is really nice if you're trying to run your clock or trying to improve accuracy uh, this is really nice to have. A little bit different purpose here. I mean, the goal here would be to synchronize your test equipment or your um, oscillator in your receiver. So if you're looking for some a very great, accurate time base, uh, especially for HF and UHF and uh, EME, Earth, Moon, Earth communication, moon bounce communication. This is very nice to have uh, have a, a uh, frequency that can come out. So that's option three. Now this is option three. I'm limiting it to the chipset itself to come out with a uh, with a uh, higher frequency and more stable. I might add less jitter uh, than you would with a one pulse per second. 
Yeah. We've mentioned Joe a couple of times, and I think this is a good time to, to, to kind of mention it a little bit more uh, in detail. Jitter. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's somewhere in the order of, of 100 nanoseconds to even 10 microseconds of variability around the um, one pulse per second output on the, on at the top surface, that seems like it's a pretty small amount, but it really, in the kind of timing that we're dealing with in communications, it's, it's not that great. So um, I think there's a there are techniques called um, oh, disciplined oscillators. So there are circuits that can be used to take that one pulse per second, or even that uh, um, some of the intermediate frequencies that might be generated, uh, 10 kilohertz, or in the case that you saw in here, uh, 10 megahertz, and discipline that over time to average out and provide a more uh, stable signal. Is is that kind of right in uh, in, in general? Yeah, that leads right into my next slide. So this this is perfect for that because uh, this is an example of one of the first circuits I've seen. Brooke Shera did this, published this in QST. Uh, quite some time ago. And what this circuit does, it'll take your one pulse per second from GPS. If you look to your far left, you got a one PPS signal going into a inverting buffer. And then basically the rest of this thing is a countdown timer and correction of the, you can see the A to D or D to A on your far right, U9. He corrects then for the, the frequency the 5 megahertz, which is coming out of this. So he constantly updates and corrects the 5 megahertz oscillator based upon the one PPS coming in. So this is an example of a GPS-disciplined oscillator. And uh, he's using, uh, it shows you how, along, how, much, how many years ago, this was 74 series logic. And, uh, but it still works. And where you, where, you, where you run into a little bit of trouble with this is you have a much more accurate clock has to have the right time base in order to correct for any kind of movements between the one pulse per second. And there will be a litter, a little. So that's that's kind of the jitter I was referring to between the one pulse per, per second. And there's variations on this. Uh, basically, there's lower cost variations on this and um, less less parts count. But this is what the AM community has been using for, for quite some time as a and and Brooke Shera did this for his frequency counter, so he can get a very accurate uh, snapshot of frequency. Okay, Joe, you dropped out a little bit there. I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm understanding better what uh, is happening. Um, we'll, we'll talk offline about it, but I think other channel interference is either shutting you down or um, um, sort of similar to nearby signals affecting your AGC. But anyways, so this um, disciplined um, uh, GPS disciplined oscillator is a very is a very useful circuit, and we have some great references in in the list down below. Look for specifically the ones from this one here. Um, the uh, oh shucks, what was it? The, the Shira. Um, I forgot the name of it now. Um, put it in the notes, George. Okay, good. Brooks Shira. Yeah, look for that down in our references, and also look for the G3RUH. G3RUH uh, produces a 10 megahertz signal that is uh, 
disciplining the uh, dis that is that is uh, taking the one pulse per second and then uh, uh, using it to create a very stable 10 megahertz signal. So this is going to be a very useful type of uh, circuit for most of us to use when it comes time to using a GPS uh, module. Yeah, and I just want to confirm in case there was any voice gaps before. You're just taking the one pulse per second, and then you're phase locking it to a in this this particular case five megahertz output, and that's to, that constantly is tapping at one pulse per second, and that's disciplining the oscillator to correct and stay on the rising edge of that signal. Okay, good. Nick, you had a question. Go ahead, please. Yeah, great. I, I hope you guys can help me out, and I'm sure the other guys are probably out there that have never heard of a disciplined oscillator. Can you describe as best you can or uh, define what a disciplined oscillator is? Over. Go ahead, JJ. Sure. Yeah, I would say, uh, well, a disciplined oscillator, if you have a, a free-running oscillator, you're going to get a little bit of drift. So how do you minimize the drift? Well, you can use temperature-controlled uh, TCXO, which is a temperature-controlled um, you can use a, an oven, which is an external temperature control um, uh, environment, a double oven, which is, you know, very, very accurate temperatures. Anyhow, the, the goal there would be to keep the frequency uh, accurate and not drift. And um, discipline means that I'm constantly correcting it. I'm constantly resetting the oscillator at the proper frequency, and that's that's the function of that circuit I was just showing you that constantly taps or corrects the um, free running oscillator at five megahertz and it does that by taking taking the value and then changing the oscillator um, analog value which is which is then corrects the frequency so you're you're feeding an oscillator and you're correcting with the differences between the one pulse per second and your free running frequency. And then to correct it all, you have to have a divide by circuit to make sure it's all speaking at one pulse per second. And I don't know if that makes sense or is more confusing. No, actually it was, actually it was great. Uh, to me, I would have called it a phase lock loop, uh, but you can't call it phase lock loop because there's no phase there. It's just the fact that the, uh, uh, the pulse train is what's gonna re bring the oscillator back in place, but in ways, you just described the phase lock loop oscillator uh, uh, system. Over. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the way I think of it. And um, and uh, next to the last slide, so this is this is one of my products uh, that I've developed and architected and tested. And basically, the way I test GPS is I give it a command and reroute. Use it. I have an ARM 11 on this board. And I pay arm nine, excuse me. And I take the the NMEA serial sentences coming off of the Mubox Amy chip, which I box the architectural element in yellow, it's where in red label it GPS Mubox Amy five. That's the name of the GPS module. So in that box is the saw filter, the RF amp, and so forth. And then basically the large square is an arm seven baseband. So while it spits out my USB port when I tell it to, that's what an NMEA uh, sentences look like. You see the dollar sign, GP, 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 and then there's a string of data after that. And that's, that's the data, latitude, longitude, timing, signal strength, everything is in those sentences. 
Um, and so that's coming out the USB port. It also can come out the serial TTL NMEA. We have the baseband code that can route it either or. And I use that for testing this particular circuit and notably trying out new antennas. So if you look at the bottom of the actual board, I have a, a folded F uh, L-band PC trace antenna. And those geometries have to be carefully controlled by the PC board manufacturer. So I have the weight of the of the um, copper and so forth uh, on the Gerber's marked as the, on the Gerber's. So that placement and that particular geometry is carefully controlled. And then the the reward on that is to have a matched antenna. And then you see you take the NMEA data, jump to the next slide. One of the last slides here. I'm feeding the NMEA into a a analytics engine that they give away for free, by the way. So you could take your NMEA data and feed the Mu Center, um, and then you could start looking at all the data visually. So the top box, I'm I'm showing the position of the satellites that I'm receiving, and the box underneath that shows the signal strength of each one of those, and that could be expanded so you can actually see the uh, histogram of the actual level, and then uh, that's below the the histogram. So you could see I'm seeing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm seeing nine satellites are being visible. By the way, this is indoors. This is indoor in my wood structure house. Um, I'm seeing these, this number of satellites. And then you go up to the upper right, and you see the longitude, the latitude, the altitude. Uh, time the first fix is not in there. But it shows you what type of fix it is, and it's the 3D, which I, I mentioned is, is ideal. You want to see a 3D. And then you see underneath uh, PDOP and HDOP, and that's your error. That's the geometry error, dilution of precision. That shows you what kind of errors you're seeing in your uh, that the antenna is seeing, basically. And then you look below that, and you see a speed. Speed is also coming out on GPS, and you see I'm not moving. And then what's very critical to this whole discussion is time of day, and that's shown as a as a clock, <laughs> a simple simple clock. So that's um, that's what I use in in my day job to verify that the GPS is working fine. And uh, we have loopbacks, so in the field I can remotely tell it to loop back and give me the NMEA sentences, so I can analyze where the where the device is and what's it doing, what's it seeing. That is, and I, I must attest to uh, this. Joe loaned me um, the. Uh, uh, the U-Blox development kit, it turned out to be it's a little box that the antenna plugs into. You supply, actually, no power, just uh, UP, uh, um, USB connection to the PC. And this is the screen that I see running uh, when running the software. The thing of note, and I think the thing that Joe has underscored a couple of times, is that uh, the signal detection capability of, of uh, your Ublox uh, six. I think you gave me the Ublox two, Ublox uh, five. But nonetheless, the one that I have here, uh, the antenna. I'm, we've talked about my station before. I'm underground. Um, I'm in the basement of a house, and the receiver antenna, the standard kind of uh, satellite receiver antenna, like a mag mount that you put on a car, is sitting on a shelf, which is again probably uh, three feet below ground in a concrete, you know, behind a concrete uh, foundation, wooden house structure above. But I see just as many 
of the satellites as shown in this picture, I believe. And the reports are phenomenal, and, and it doesn't take that long to, to connect up. So I think this is just a kind of a testament to your technology, Joe. Good going. That's, that's amazing performance. Uh, sorry, Joe. Um, Rick, you had a question? Uh, yes, I, I'm trying to follow along with what you're saying, and I can see how you can generate an ultra-stable oscillator good to a few parts per billion. Uh, I'm just trying to see how this relates uh, to QRP operation in a ham radio environment. Yeah, we kind of haven't gotten to that. We're just uh, sort of uh, the basics. We'll, get, we'll kind of close the loop on that. Uh, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, so I guess to answer your question is... Um, what we have is a solution then for field use without have, having the, you know, we don't need no stinking PC and we don't need no stinking PC clocks um, <laughs> to run to run the unit in the field. Uh, that's the bottom line. So if you wanted to have JT65, Whisper, and all the variants, uh, we highly recommend the um, this. This would be a good solution for that. So that's to, to answer your question. Um, some of the best protocols I look at for, for weak signal detection, this is essential to do that. Does that answer your question? Let me amplify that a little bit more if I could, Joe. Um, we, what we've talked about here is having a GPS uh, module that is able to present a very stable one pulse per second signal. Some can also deliver a uh, frequency, um, and both of which can be uh, further stabilized through some um, discipline, disciplining circuits as we've been talking. The re end result, though, for ham radio communications is uh, at least uh, two points. One is that we can provide a stable, a very, very stable um, clock, um, a reference clock. A 10 megahertz reference clock is a usual type of thing, and that's, uh, for example, I was looking at the G3RUH, is a really good solution, and there's a, a homebrew solution of that that we're going to be talking about uh, um, subsequently. So we've got Envision having a 10 megahertz uh, signal that is able to be used in different, uh, as, as a seed or a clock, for different LOs that you've got in your shack. Um, local oscillators that would be feeding, uh, or being used in your transmitters, specifically for SDR communications. For example, uh, the SDR cube uses a 30 megahertz um, reference oscillator in, in its DDS LO implementation. So instead of using a, 38, a 30 megahertz reference oscillator, for example, we could have a disciplined 30 megahertz uh, LO generated in a separate box and have that, um, that uh, reference oscillator pumped over to the SDR cube or to, you know, whatever SDR uh, type of rig that you're using, and you would be guaranteed of having a uh, the most accurate as possible with, with moderate means um, reference oscillator, which corresponds to having an accurate frequency. So, and especially then if you need if you have two devices, two transmitters, or or others that have a need for synchronization to be on exact same frequency with the same characteristics, the same phase characteristics, you could feed those um, transmitters with this, this master oscillator in, the, uh, in your shack. Of course, that same 10 megahertz oscillator could be used as, um, as, a, as a reference feed into your frequency counter. Many frequency counters, professional ones or commercial ones, take 
uh, I can't accept an external uh, reference oscillator. So if you provided a very accurate 10 megahertz reference oscillator, you have a correspondingly very accurate reading on your on your uh, uh, counter. So I mean that's a that's a sample, uh, a couple samples for accurate frequencies, uh, frequency references that can be used in the shack. Um, even more so, to, and specifically to Joe, uh, to JJ's points and slides here, taking that one pulse per second and uh, disciplining it to have even greater uh, ac accuracy and, and reducing the jitter is um, is essential in some of the lower power digital or QRP digital communications, such as Whisper and um, uh, JT65, and who knows what else uh, might be coming along. It's even useful, for example, in something called Coherent CW. Coherent CW is a predecessor to PSK back in the 1995 to 98 time period. Even uh, Joe E. and I were um, experimenting with some of that, and we made a presentation one time at uh, FDIM uh, over in Dayton about that. And it depended on accurate synchronization of transmitted signals on and off time. Coming again back to the Joe Taylor's um, principles that, that JJ outlined, if you know exactly when a transmission is going to start um, and subsequently when it's going to stop, perhaps, on the receive side, you have so much additional information that you can have a filter that is so narrow, so very much narrower, and thus able to pull, uh, extract a lower level signal out of the, out of the noise. And in other words, a low power transmitter can reach the receiver um, with rather conventional techniques. If you're able to reduce the bandwidth of the, of the receiver down to focus only on that one uh, frequency, when you know when it's going to be uh, transmitted and received. So long story short, and and I'll turn it back to JJ to correct me on all these things. But the bottom line is that. The GPS is a technique that uh, GPS signals, uh, timing signals, are a technique that can be used very effectively in uh, QRP digital communications for synchronization purposes. And um, specifically, we're going to see some of these things coming about in the SDR cube. We already have Whisper working um, um, on the bench, and we're going to be releasing that code really shortly. It uses an external uh, GPS one PPS signal as an input to the module and the software in the cube is able to synchronize to that and then transmit it's a whisper beacon uh, mode and able to transmit uh, uh, in the with that particular protocol and that particular timing relationship based on that one pulse per second uh, coming in uh, taking that same principle and extending it even further for JT65 actual bi-directional communications, information type of communications, not a beacon. Um, the same kind of principle is used to synchronize these JT65 mode uh, or protocol um, uh, communications. And, and that's kind of, again, I'm a long-winded uh, individual, but I'm just trying to tie together some different uh, concepts here. JJ, did I kind of get that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's really, in broad buckets, in broad buckets, there's really two that I see a value in the shack. Number one, if you have any kind of instrumentation, any kind of signal generator, any kind of um, any kind of uh, communications test set, whether it's uh, you know I've got Marconi, I've got some older test sets that are great. Um, HP, they always have a jack on the back. You'll see a you'll see a coax 
uh, typically a BNC, uh, that will have external input. So you'll see external input 10 megahertz or 5 megahertz. And then that, that makes sure, so then you have a primary uh, frequency source that locks everything, you know, down to 10 to the minus 10th, 11th uh, in frequency. So that's one use. Then the other use is very, if you look at how many watts, how many miles per watt, uh, these are the techniques that win the war. And um, I mean, I, anybody who's looked at Whisper, uh, in terms of how many miles per watt, I mean, it, it really wins the wins the battle. Um, now, there's people critical of that and saying, well, you're not transmitting a lot of useful information. But uh, with JT65, that the origins of that came from moon bounce. So when you got a path loss of minus 240 and minus 250 dB path loss, you got to be playing all the all the games you can to get. Uh, QRP reception. So there are the two buckets I see where, where where this works very nicely. Rick, did that kind of uh, answer or tie together some things? Yeah, that certainly uh, bends back toward at least uh, where my interests were in the in the what's in it for me kind of uh, attitude toward it. So it looks as though the ultimately in terms of JT65, what you want to do is close the loop and have your time base actually be driving the timing of the transmitter so you're not sitting there with your finger hovering over the transmit button waiting for the clock to go up tick up to the top of the hour uh, instead that can all be handled automatically so that it's perfectly synchronized with the receiver yeah pretty much um what you were talking about about timing at the top of the hour that's kind of uh that that's an easy thing to do um the Disciplined clocks that we're talking about here are actually controlling the, uh, the precise timing of the transmissions uh, down at the at the second level and synchronized to UTC. So it all kind of wraps together. So yeah, it uh, you kind of got it. And thanks for your question. Are there other questions here? We're about to wrap up. Um, uh, Jim, go ahead. Okay, am I coming through? Yeah, loud and clear. Okay. I hope this makes sense. Um, UTC normally ticks along at one tick per second, but every once in a while they throw in a leap second, and that's to keep the time synchronized to the year or the Earth's motion around the sun. But I thought I read someplace that although UTC uses leap seconds, GPS specifically doesn't use leap, sec leap seconds. So I guess it's really two questions. Is that really the case? And is this something I'm supposed to be worried about? Or is somehow, somewhere, this is all going to get solved in the software that somebody else wrote? Yeah, well, the basic, um, the basic UTC and uh, information is passed along as when you parse the GPS. And as far as the correction factors, that's, that's all done external to the GPS. I mean, that's done, you know, in the, the main GPS system. So what gets handed to NMEA, you do have to parse it, you do have to pick it up, and you do have to, I believe, correct the units. Um, but, you know, it's a matter of, uh, you know, certainly with your software skills, you can parse that with Python without any problems, Jim. Okay, but I guess the, the what what does NMEA give me out of a G, out of a GPS unit? Is it guaranteed to give me UTC, or is it going to give me GPS time, which is 
I don't know what is the difference by now. Five seconds, or I don't even know what the difference would be now. The difference between, you know, official GP. I can see why GPS doesn't want to do leap seconds because who's no, who knows what would happen when you had a leap sec second if you were driving along in your car. But what is NMEA telling me? Is it really official UTC? It depends on what what header, what packet, what sentence you're reading. Some of the, the sentences that we extracted data from uh, when I worked for GE, we use UTC directly. Now there's both, there's GPS time and there's UTC and the difference is between, is, is on the header, the dollar sign GP headers that you use. Um, we should post the NMEA protocol on the site too and that'll tell you where to parse and where to get UTC time. But we, we, were, we weren't correcting it. We were taking UTC time based upon reading the, and I don't remember off the top of my head what the dollar sign GP sequence was, but um, you can pull uh, UTC time directly. Uh, only, after, only after you have a 3D fix. I think that was the catch. Uh, in other words, you'll get, you'll get, um, you won't get accurate time because the real-time clock is running and the only you have to first look at your NMEA string to make sure you have a 3D fix and then you go and look at your UTC time uh, slot. Okay, great. Other questions? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yes, good evening. Um, two questions. I've got a old Jupiter Rockwell uh, GPS was interested in using it to control the timing of my PC so that I could use JT65 instead of the dimension. Um, I can get the thing out to where the I can read the NMEA either on the um, you know on a simple communication software. Uh, what's out there that's non-proprietary freebie type software that would be suitable to interface that one pip to uh, so that it could be in control the actual PC clock. Let me, re let me repeat your question, then I'll toss it over to JJ, because your, vo your audio is way, 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 way down, Don. Um, you have a Rockwell GPS, a, a Rockwell Jupiter GPS, I think you said, and, and then you're also wondering what is out there in the form of free software or open source software for uh, interpretation of the NMEA uh, software uh, sentences. Go ahead, JJ. Free, and I think there's an NMEA Time Pro that costs a few shekels, uh, but that will directly read NMEA and correct the clocks on a PC. Joe, could uh, you start over again, please? We lost your first part of the transmission. Oh, I'm sorry. It's uh, there's a utility. It's called NMEA Time, uh, and there's NMEA Time Pro that costs that costs a few dollars, but it will read it directly and correct your PC clock. Did I Thank cut you. out there? Okay. Yeah, and I'm sure there's other ones by now, but that was one I used, NMEA Time Pro, and I think it cost uh, 10 bucks or something. Actually, I have a uh, kind of an orthogonal question that came to mind uh, looking at the uh, utility that lets you look at the uh, NMEA strings and uh, display the data. Um, is there any identification that comes out on those NMEA strings when you're looking at uh, some of the um, 
Russian satellites or the European satellites, Jeff? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. That's, um, yeah, on the new software, I was surprised the other day that it pops up with uh, GLONASS. Um, and it's color coded. So you got US and then you got gloss nose. But the cool thing is you see at least four or five more satellites than you would with just US Navstar GPS. Okay, so the data formats then are compatible. Right. It's only compatible, but it's 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 generated in the baseband. Uh, so what comes out NMEA, it is coded for that. So you actually see it in the NMEA. But in its in its the canonical form is built in the baseband. So it actually spits it out on the same UART, you know, same NMEA sequences. Thank you. Okay. Um, actually, one more thing, JJ. Um, we, um, if I can put you on the spot here, you had said that the uh, your U-blocks, the basic U-blocks uh, low-end um, GPS receiver module that you had, is on the order of like ten bucks or so. I, if that's indeed available, what I'd like to do is to act as a focal point here for listeners who might be interested in getting that um, to let me know. And then I could then collect and relay onto you, and we could then arrange to get the uh, the appropriate units down and mailed out to people, along with, uh, of course, information as far as the development kit for it, which basically is apply power, apply antenna, and pull out the NMEA string to an ASCII uh, uh, display, and then you can have software, some of the free software that I've been listing here, interpret that for you, or of course use the uBlocks software which produces that screen that you showed uh, before. But JJ, is that something that we want to entertain? Sure, sure. On the, um, the way uh, home tonight, I called, I called MuBlocks and uh, uh, I, got them, uh, I got a deal that uh, we can get the, the two, uh, two outputs, the one PPS and then a, a up to a 10 megahertz output that uh, is excellent. And so these are the chips they use for synchronizing base stations. And, and so, so without that elaborate circuit that uh, Brooke Share did, this comes right out off of, off of the uh, chip. So if you need 5 megahertz, you program it for 5 megahertz, and out comes 5 megahertz. So that chip is in the order of, uh, I, think, uh, I think, in the area of 25 bucks. But that's complete. You don't have to add anything to that. Okay, well, let's do it this way then. Um, I'll summarize things on the chat with the designer webpage um, as far as like what we're really talking about here to make it easier to understand perhaps. And then you can contact uh, contact us and let us know if you're interested and we'll probably show some ways that we can, that you can put together your little uh, relatively inexpensive uh, GPS receiver with the superior performance that the U-Blocks offers as we've seen here. And then uh, we're likely then going to be able to extend those um, principles, those timing, accurate timing principles out along the directions we summarized uh, with Rick's question. How can you use it in the shack? How can you use it for Whisper and JT65 uh, transmission synchronization uh, or communications synchronization and things like that? Okay, uh, Joe, Jessen, thanks so much for your uh, uh, presentation here tonight. Uh, Joe, 
Everhart, uh, you were going to uh, kind of wrap things up, but before you do, did you have a, a moment just to kind of catch us up on the MIT flea? Certainly, George. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I've been in Boston any number of times, and I know that uh, at MIT there's something called the flea at MIT, which is an electronics flea market. Um, I took vacation uh, uh, several weeks ago, and I was fortunate enough to be in the area at the time they have it. I think it's the third Saturday of uh, every month, uh, every summer month, starting in May and ending October. But it's kind of neat because it's a uh, it's a flea market that it costs, costs you five bucks to get into. Uh, the usual tailgating sort of thing. And I would guess they probably had, oh, at least 50 or 75 uh, tailgaters there with all kinds of electronic stuff. They had uh, tools. They had uh, electronic parts. They had uh, some computer stuff, um, books, CDs, and even some ham rigs, a, a wide spectrum of stuff. Pretty good. They do it every month, and uh, uh, I finally got got to get in there. One humorous thing, uh, one guy to, uh, to get everybody's attention had, uh, I think it was his sister there, who uh, was like 18, who was dressed in a bikini. It was a nice warm day. And she was standing by his table. She was holding the money. <clears throat> and obviously having a pretty girl there drew people's attention. And she was the one who handled the money when he made a sale. And then uh, there was this line of uh, older gentlemen standing there, uh, kind of ogling. And one of them said, uh, gee, uh, can I stand next to you and have my picture taken? And she said, sure, two bucks. So then about 20 guys stood there uh, next to this attractive gal, put their arm around her, and each one had their picture taken and paid her two bucks. So that tailgating spot made out quite well. Anyway, the wrap up of this evening, we had an excellent uh, presentation of uh, GPS principles, both the uh, system, um, the uh, implementation of the uh, system and satellites, um, presented by Joe Jessen, who is an expert on the subject, used it uh, professionally, along with a description of the signals that come from GPS um, and the information that's in the signals, very valuable information that give you, uh, uh, in addition to the normal uh, position information that we use in, our, in uh, navigation, uh, you can also get uh, a very accurate time out of it and uh, a timing signal that can be converted to uh, a frequency source. Uh, and he presented uh, different ways of <clears throat> purchasing some relatively inexpensive modules that do all the work for you, that provide the, the timing signals, and in at least one instance, a, a, a disciplined frequency output, very accurate frequency output, and the time information. And then we had a segue to a discussion of how this information can be used for some of the more modern uh, synchronous communication systems for low, low signal level work, specifically uh, Whisper and JT65 that use the accurate time and frequency information that can be gotten from, uh, from the GPS receivers. And uh, at least an overview of how these things can be used to uh, to give you some very accurate 
very precise uh, inputs to uh, to these modulation schemes that uh, can be used uh, actually to better advantage than uh, most of the um, computer, the Windows software at any rate. Uh, thanks to JJ for presenting all this. I highly encourage you folks to read over this material and to look at the references. There's a wealth of information in the references. So if there are any further questions you can ask us or uh, dig in with yourself and uh, uh, have a good learning experience. I've used some of this professionally, but uh, in the last 10 years, it's, it's just grown by leaps and bounds. And uh, as Joe has pointed out here, it's been made much more simple the average ham to apply. Uh, it's going to really revolutionize uh, weak signal work in ham radio. Oh, thanks a lot, Joe. Um, for the wrap-up, and Joe Jess, an excellent job here tonight. We ran a little bit over time, but I think this is just super information, and uh, glad you all could join us here. And we'll just give one final uh, chance for anybody to ask questions uh, before we break. Go ahead. Great. Hey, I, I just want to say thanks. It was a uh, wow, an in-depth, uh, well, I won't say in-depth, but definitely uh, beyond even, even mine. I, I always consider myself, uh, well, I'm not well-versed, but versed enough, but uh, I've never thought about uh, having, uh, using GPS. I've used GPS for time base in uh, the uh, old uh, multiplexes we use for our networking, but uh, never thought about it using it for the radio side. Yeah, great topic, though. I hope you guys do some more. Thanks. Bye. Thanks a lot, Nick. Uh, Rick, you had something. Uh, just the usual question. I wonder what the, the status is of the various kits that you were hoping to bring in uh, that uh, we could uh, work on we've discussed in previous weeks. Uh, still working on it, Rick. A lot of stuff going on. I appreciate you asking, though, and uh, I'll, I'll be bring, uh, surfacing some of the, uh, the first to become available pretty shortly. Again, the Rainbow Tuner is going to be one of the first ones. Okay. Alrighty then. Thanks an awful lot to everybody, uh, especially to Joe Jessen, guest host for uh, tonight. And um, be sure to stay tuned to the uh, Chat with the Designer Yahoo group. We'll post a little bit of information about the availability of uh, JJ's uh, U-Blocks module. Rather inexpensive. Just connect a, uh, connect a power source, connect your GPS antenna, and take some of the freeware out there to take the RS-232 uh, or the, uh, the UART information coming out in the form of NMEA and uh, you'll be all set to start using this to for the different applications that we outlined here in the, uh, in the session tonight. Um, if uh, A reminder that if you haven't been looking at the uh, texting tab in the bottom of the TeamSpeak application, make sure you have QRP homebrewing tab uh, selected. We've been given tons of uh, different links and references and some ongoing dialogue, which is our usual practice for tonight. This is the information that I collect and we put onto the website uh, after the fact in the uh, discussion uh, section. Okay, thank you everybody for attending Chat with the Designers. Uh, another vacation is coming up between Joe and myself and we're going to have to figure out what and how to do it and we may take a week's break. We don't know. So stay tuned. We'll give information about what's cooking. Bye-bye.